0: This is Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. Today's episode is sponsored by Health Innovation Media. We bring your brand messaging alive on the ground and now in the virtual space for major trade show, conference, and innovation summits via our signature pop-up studio. Connect with us at www.popupstudio.productions. I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media, publisher of acowatch.com, and your Pop Health Week co-host with my partner co-founder, Fred Goldstein, President of Accountable Health, LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. On today's show, our guest is Marino A. Bruce, who holds several degrees, including a doctorate, a Master of Science in Rehabilitation Counseling, and a Master in Divinity. Dr. Bruce directs the program for research on faith, health, and justice in the Department of Population Health Science at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. He is a social and behavioral scientist with interests in the integration of the full range of health determinants, specifically for young African American males and their risk factors for chronic kidney disease and cardiovascular disease. His current research explores the intersection of race, gender, spirituality, religiosity, and behavior, and their implications for social and health outcomes among African-American male boys, adolescents, and emerging adults. Dr. Bruce is also a certified rehabilitation counselor and an ordained Baptist minister. With that introduction, Fred, over to you. Help us get to know Dr. Marino Bruce.
1: Thank you very much, Greg, and Marino, welcome to the Pop Health Week.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, it's really a pleasure to get you on the show. You know, we're trying to focus now on some of the major issues that have come about because of the George Floyd incident and the murder there and COVID, et cetera, and it was really exciting to find out that you're on the faculty at UMC and the School of Population Health and your background, which is really right in the middle of a lot of these things. So why don't we start, if you could give a little bit of your background to our audience so they can get a sense of who you are and what you do.
2: Sure. I am a sociologist by training. I was trained, got my PhD at North Carolina State University, uh, spent eight years at, on the faculty in a traditional sociology department at the University of Wisconsin Madison. Then discovered a real interest in health after studying violence among African American males for a number of years, and then began to focus on looking at the health of African Americans more generally. And then began to have a clearer focus on, a more direct focus on the health of African American males across the life course. So I spent a number of years after leaving Wisconsin going to the, going to Vanderbilt University, and uh, Meharry Medical College for five years, beginning my career in health science. And after that. I left and came to the University of Mississippi Medical Center and Jackson State University to work with the Jackson Heart Study, which is the largest epidemiological study of African Americans probably in the world, to be quite honest. And it's been going on since 2000. Then I left Mississippi for a while, back to Vanderbilt to do some work on precision medicine um, and that type of work focusing on how precision medicine and its uh, applications can be explained to apply with or working with communities of color in Nashville and Miami. And I got recruited back to the University of Mississippi Medical Center to continue all of that work that I've been doing over, over a career of that's now 20 years, believe it or not.
1: Wow. That's that's fantastic. And you raised something that actually we had a discussion last week that went on for a long time. You talked here about some precision medicine work. And I'd love to sort of dive into that maybe a little bit. And and because there's always been this talk of health disparities and access. So what sort of things were you looking at with precision medicine in terms of African-Americans and males in particular? Oh, sure. So with
2: precision medicine, I was brought on that because of my interest and expertise in social factors, what some people call the social determinants of health. But as a sociologist, are, those are the things that we, that we train to study, and so they're a little bit more to, than determinants to us. But I began to think about um, how stress, in particular, is transmitted mm-hmm. across generations, not only across a life course, but across generations, given that I spent a number of years and you know still live in Mississippi right now thinking about how poverty we talk about multi multi generational poverty. Well, there's stress attached to that that comes with that and how does that impact generations downstream? So we wrote a couple of pilot grants that were that were approved but because of the timing Uh, We did not get a chance to launch it off the ground, so we still are working on that, trying to find ways to get support from NIH to do this work, particularly in rural areas. I have a real interest in understanding how generational poverty, generational racism, has implications Mm -hmm. for the health trajectories of kids. So in our study, we were going to look at three generations, grandparents, parents, and, and kids, particularly males, to see how that had applications for hypertension, for example, over time.
1: Fascinating. That, that's really neat. And, and, I, and we know, obviously, these huge impacts of racism, bias, and discrimination on stress, anxiety, mm-hmm. you know, substance use, et cetera. We also talked some about this issue of violence and violence as a form mm-hmm. of communications. Can you sure. talk about that and explain that to our audience? Yes. My earliest work
2: focused on violence among African-American males. And I really wanted to break down violence. We spend time looking at the horror because a violent act, typically someone gets hurt. So let's start there. However, it is a form of communication. It's used in, at the individual level, but it's also used at the national level to convey if you don't do something, then bad consequences are going to happen, and it just so Mm -hmm. happens at the individual level, the threat of violence actually can persuade people to act one way or another. So, for example, in the drug trade, typically Mm -hmm. violence is a way that people try to keep folks in line. Well, of course, but you see the same patterns in national diplomacy. So what happens when, let's say, the Middle East gets a little hot and one of the United States allies will get in trouble, what do you see? You will see military ships, aircraft carriers will move into a particular region. The Air Force will, will begin to have planes fly over. Well, what's that? That's the threat of violence. It's basically mm-hmm. saying if you don't get your act together, we will bomb you. We will hurt you. We will injure you. It's real. The parallels are actually striking to what goes on on the street, per se, that we think about in terms of the drug trade, that with those same parallels are with what happens in diplomacy. Now, in diplomacy, supposedly military action is of a last resort as opposed to the first resort. However, it's still a tool that's in the diplomacy tool belt. So wars start because other forms of diplomacy aren't successful. So violence is something that's always in the arsenal to get either a person or a group of people to behave in a particular way.
1: And I know you talked about this, was, I found this interesting. The period of most violence, I think you said, was when people are two years old? Yes,
2: two years old, yes. There have been studies, uh, well-known studies that were done now some time ago, I think
1: roughly 15,
2: 20 years ago. The investigators were Canadian, and they were studying infants. And one of the things that they found was that, that the most violent time in anyone's lifetime is when you're two years old. Why do I say that? Because on the National Victimization Survey, when you ask a person about their violent encounters, they will ask, have you been kicked, punched, or bitten? Right? Those three actions are violent acts. If you kick someone, you punch someone, or you bite someone, that's, that's a violent act. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the criminal code, doing that, you can be charged with assault. So those three acts are still, they're used by two-year-olds to convey their anger or their displeasure or what have you, and they do it a lot. Now, why would that be the case? Because they can't communicate in many other ways. They don't have command of language. They often are not paid attention to in the same way that you would at adult. So they get your attention by doing those things. So if they're mm-hmm. upset, they will strike out their kick or hit someone, if if a parent will do something that, that displeases them, they'll you know, they hit the parents and the parents will say stop it or what have you. But that act just, you know, again, now the damage they do is minimal. However, the act itself is still can be considered a violent act. So violent mm-hmm. is something that most, if not all, individuals have access to because they can they typically can strike out in a certain way. So it's, it's, it's within us to behave in a violent way. So it's not that one group is more violent than the other innately. It's more uh-huh. along the lines of what other tools, what other communicative tools are available to them that, where you may see differences in violence among particular groups.
1: Fascinating. I know you've also you know, done a lot of research in this area, and you were a co-author on a book, Racism, Science, and Tools for the Public Health. What should we be measuring in this area, and what are the benefits we gain by doing that? Well, I think what we need to do,
2: we should be measuring racism. It's really funny. I was talking with a colleague a few minutes ago about the very thing. How do we measure racism? Mm-hmm. There are a few measures out there. Index for race-related, uh, Race-Related Stress sort of gets at that. There's a schedule of racist events that was published in 1996, so it's been around a while, but those have been mm-hmm. largely used by smaller studies. Generally, typically, they've been used in college settings. So they'll give it to their students or you know, maybe at a university or what have you, but we have not used that on a large scale. Part of it is racism is a term that until, I would argue, six to eight months ago, that you would not see or hear on, let's say, the national news. You wouldn't hear about mm-hmm. that. The idea of structural racism or racism per se, those were, those were terms that were reserved for more academic settings or maybe interpersonal settings, but never in the national discourse. Well, things have changed dramatically over the last mm-hmm. six to eight months, both with COVID in terms of, of the disparities that people see with respect to not only infection but mortality from infection, And, of Mm -hmm. course, you know, the initial uh, explanation, well, you know, African Americans have a higher propensity for these underlying conditions or the risk factors for mortality, you know, if someone is infected with COVID. However, other folks, David Williams and a lot of other prominent health scientists have, have been very loud in saying, well, you have to look at what causes a higher propensity for these underlying conditions, and racism is part of that. It's part of that because racism is baked into our society, and, mm-hmm. and so coming to terms with that requires one to examine what do we mean by institutional racism or structural racism, systematic racism. All of those terms, they, they are not synonyms for one another. They are re- obviously related but they speak to, for example, institutional racism is is how institutions like educational institutions, judicial institutions, social institutions, how they work, just just the way they work on a normal basis discriminates uh, one group while it may not discriminate against another group. For example, educational institutions. We know or we will say that if they are, let's say there are 50 seats that are available for college admission right? So they'll look at things like SAT scores, grades, you know, those types of individual types of indicators. What's not considered in a standardized way is the context under which those grades were earned, those scores were achieved, or anything like that. Correct. So if you go to a private school with SAT or ACT prep, you are in communities that are deemed safe, you're, you have access to other types of resources that sort of propel you and move you forward, create an, um, an environment of expectation that college is something that is more of a right than a privilege for you, um, you're likely to score better. You're likely to have, have higher grades and score better on, on the SAT or ACT. You're more likely to be to get exposure to what's known as cultural capital, those summer internships, travel Mm -hmm. abroad, being well-read, all of those types of things, you're more likely, living in a community like that, to be a strong candidate. But if you don't come from that, let's say you come from a rural environment where they are not private schools, they are public schools that are under-resourced, underfunded, Uh, We know that folks in rural areas tend to make less than than those in more affluent areas, and their access to cultural capital is limited. So when they come, and their grades may be good, but when you look at the standardized tests, which measure a lot of cultural capital, quite frankly, Mm -hmm. they're going to score lower. So so even if they have the same, quote-unquote, IQ, if you could standardize that, then once the student from the more affluent area will more likely to be in line to get that seat versus the person with the same intellectual quotient, but because of that background, they just don't have the resources, they didn't have the resources available so that they would score in the same way. Right. right. So mm-hmm. those, So the way the institution admits folks has inequality baked into it. Mm-hmm. And, unfortunately, and the system
1: that, that helps those kids grow up has it baked into it. Yes, yes. So that's just right. with whether correct. it's around their health that caused all the people to have more comorbidities in that population because of where they lived and what they had access to, or their education, or the other issues that we deal with. Correct, correct. That's
2: absolutely mm-hmm. true. So when you look at health, for example, well, you said, you know, comorbidity or mortality, for example. Well, if... Let's look at African-American male life expectancy, for example. Mm-hmm. So if African-American males have a shorter life expectancy, let's say I think it's 8 to 10 years shorter than I think white women in particular, maybe 4 to 5 years shorter than um, your average Caucasian male, what does that mean? Well, that means that the wisdom that, let's say, a 65-year-old who in the life expectancy, I think the life expectancy is around 67, 68 in Mm -hmm. general for an African-American male, whereas others are 72, and I think it's close to 80 for Caucasian women. Well, Mm -hmm. look at the number of years of wisdom that is lost. Uh, Look at the resources that could be used to help someone along. Well, if someone dies Mm. at 68 and others live to be 72 to 80, well, they are around. They could be a benefit to subsequent generations. Wow. That has, mm-hmm. that has a huge impact on how individuals, the wisdom that's shared, the life lessons that are shared. When someone dies, all of those things go away. You can have the memory, but you don't have the mm-hmm. active engagement that's there. So that's right. the, when we think about health disparities, it has real impact on families and communities. When folks are mm-hmm. suffering with chronic kidney disease, which, which changes your life in terms of being able to travel, how you feel on a daily basis, all of those types of things, it can take you out of living, right? Because then mm-hmm. you focus on dealing with the whole issue of I've got to take these pills, I've got to eat a certain way, I've got to do all of this. Well, why do I raise chronic kidney disease? I raise chronic kidney disease because it is a disease that becomes a leading cause of death for African Americans when they're 35 years old and older. It becomes a leading cause of death for Caucasian men at fifty five. So you have so again, the earlier onset again has huge implications for what they're able to do in their households, in their communities. Because if they're sick, they gotta focus on dealing with their illness. And the time that they spend dealing with their illness, they're not spend focusing on the kids or focusing on their community members, focusing with their spouses. And or focusing on themselves in other ways. So it has right. a real impact for not only that generation, uh, but subsequent generations because the losses are so great. And if you're just tuning
0: in, you're listening to Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. Our guest is Dr. Marino A. Bruce, the director of the program for research on faith, health, and justice in the Department of Population Health Science at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Dr. Bruce is a social and behavioral scientist with interests in the integration of the full range of health determinants specifically for young African-American males and their risk factors for chronic kidney disease and cardiovascular
1: disease. Wow. So let me ask you this. How has your training as a counselor and a Baptist minister informed or guided your academic work? Has, has that question. impacted it? Quite substantially.
2: I got training in rehabilitation counseling because I wanted to understand more of the psychological aspects of illness and disease. I wanted to also find out more about how the mind works or the mind-body interaction. And so what happened is that my, I got a career development award when I was at Meharry mm-hmm. Medical College. And I decided, you know what, if I'm going to talk about mind-body interaction, I need to understand more about how the mind works and, and how the mind impacts the body. So I got another mm-hmm. degree in rehabilitation counseling because I was really interested in chronic kidney disease. And because chronic kidney disease has such an impact, on individuals I thought getting a degree in rehabilitation counseling would be beneficial. And it really was because a rehabilitation counselor, if those are able to, let's say, work to the top of their training, they are a critical aspect of any um, healthcare team because they think about, rehabilitation counselors think about how to make accommodations for people struggling with chronic diseases, or debilitating diseases. So Mm -hmm. I found that training invaluable in terms of thinking about how disease impacts not only individuals, but their families, because that became, you know, a larger part of the focus. As far as being a minister, well, I've been ordained for over 20 years now, and I've been actively serving in churches and every community that I belong to, and I learned that, well, wait a minute here, there's another piece. Instead of trying to straddle the fence between the spiritual realm and the health realm or the spiritual realm and the academic realm, it took me a long time to figure this out, but I, uh, someone said to me, my wife in particular, said that <laughs> you should do both. You should stop trying to decide and choose one, then integrate them. And so part of the work that I've been doing, even this whole idea of intergenerational stress, well, you also Mm -hmm. have to think about what are the intergenerational buffers that that may offset some of the challenges that that come along with living in stressful environments. Because if you look at how African Americans in particular, but particularly poor African Americans live, it's a highly stressful environment. We don't often think about the stress that comes with not being able to pay your bills. Don't think about that. Many of us who who have done well in life, you know, we just say, Okay, due date comes, write the check or click on the mouse and the bill is paid. But when it comes down to whether you stay in a residence or not, that's a hugely mm-hmm. stressful thing that you know, to get the eviction, you know, to get the calls from bill collectors or someone sliding a letter under your door saying if you don't if you don't pay by this day, we're going to put your stuff out in the street.
1: Mm-hmm. That's
2: highly stressful, and that has huge implications for how you, how you think about yourself, how you communicate with others, all of that. Well, there has to be something that's offsetting that somewhere. It has to be, because if folk were under that kind of pressure all the time, then you see a lot more explosions in many ways. And what I mean by uh-huh. that is... You'd see higher rates of suicides. you see higher rates of violence against others. Uh, you would mm-hmm. just the level of stress that's operating. So something must be going on to buffer that. And so um, among African-Americans, particularly African-Americans in the South, the church has been there and, and the lessons of the church. So even if a person may not be religious per se, somewhere down the line, they come in contact with their own spirituality. And so they may pray, they may meditate, they may do these things. Well, part of where my work is going is looking at the beneficial aspects of it. Let's see the degree to which uh, religiosity, spirituality is beneficial to one's health. Now, I've done some of the studies that looked at uh, attending worship mm-hmm. services. There's a, you know, quite a few studies that have shown that attending worship, worship services on a regular basis can be beneficial to mortality. Or, or lower mm-hmm. the odds of mortality or someone dying. And we've actually, uh, we have a study that's under review right now that shows that people with chronic kidney disease, if they're able to attend church regularly, they have better health outcomes. They tend to live longer, Wow, which is something of significance. But the question becomes, what is it about going to worship for service? What is it? We mm-hmm. still have many more questions. To pose, and I'm interested in being the one to pose them because I see not only just being in the looking at the social support aspect of it, but there's a theological aspect to churches or that undergird whatever church, synagogue, mosque that you go to. Right, and so I would argue that those theological underpinnings can uh, shape folks' worldviews. And that can have an impact on health behaviors, uh, attitudes, perceptions about themselves and others that can have implications for health.
1: That's fantastic. So we've got just a little bit of time here. I've got two quick questions for you, Marino. Sure. The first one, given what's going on right now, the BLM, George Floyd, COVID mm-hmm. disparities, what can an individual do? What should they do? Well, I would say
2: is if you don't know, if you're not sure what to do, then the first thing I would say is consult sources about what it is that you want to engage in. So if if it's mm-hmm. dismantling racism. First the thing is if you're not sure about what racism is, you know, read a few things about that. Read a few things about mm-hmm. racism. Talk to trusted people about this. People that you can trust about it. Here's why. If you just talk to folks that you are just acquainted, you know, that may be acquaintances of yours or colleagues of yours at work they may be processing their own stuff. And so they may mm-hmm. not be, be ready to have that type of conversation. So it's best to start with folks that you trust and folks that may be a little bit more knowledgeable than you about that. And then you can mm-hmm. figure out where is it that you're best suited to, if you're, if you're committed to dismantling racism, then the first thing is, you know, where are you most comfortable in operating in that space with that mission? So if it's at work, then it's, it's it could be advocating for greater diversity, more inclusion. If that's it, mm-hmm. if it's you know in a retail space, it may be organizing boycotts and demonstrations. It all depends on right. you know you. Everybody has a lane to to be in, so find what's comfortable for you because the pushback is coming. It comes, so you have to be in a comfortable space, a confident space to deal with the pushback. Don't do not assume. That well, you know what? I'm on the right side of history. This is going to go. No, we there's right. enough history in this country to say that a pushback it's is coming. coming, and and so it's better to be in a space that you're comfortable, confident in to deal with it when it comes because it's coming. One of the things about this is that what I would classify as folks that are on fire and new that this is going to this is going to take some work to do, and that that mm-hmm. initial fire is great. One of the things I tell anyone, if you if you're on this mission, read about what has happened to those who are on the field before you. That that's really important to understand how long and how hard this is. Is it noble? It absolutely is. But does it have cost? It absolutely
1: does. Well, I want to thank you so much, Marina. We couldn't get to the second question, so we're going to have to get back to you for another one. But thank you so much for coming on Pop Health Week. It's been fantastic listening to you. Sure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And with that, I'll turn it back over to you, Greg.
0: And thank you, Fred. That is the last word on today's program. I do want to thank Dr. Marina Bruce, the director of the Program for Research on Faith, Health, and Justice in the Department of Population Health Science at the University of Mississippi Medical Center for his time and generous insights today. For more information on Mississippi's only academic medical center's mission and services, go to www.umc.edu and do follow their work on Twitter via at UMMC News or the Dean of the School of Medicine, Dr. Luann Woodward via at L.A. Woodward, M.D. For Pop Health Week, my colleague Fred Goldstein and Healthcare Now Radio, this is Greg Masters saying bye now.